Good evening, everyone. It's time for a bedtime story with with Thompson. We're reading The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman. And we were in the we were reading chapter three last time, so let's finish that up before we start chapter four. Fort Laramie was still 400 miles away, a journey of three weeks. We would be passing up the middle of a long, sandy plain reaching nearly to the Rocky Mountains. On either side of the plain were lines of sand hills, broken in the wildest and most fantastic forms. And beyond these sand hills lay a barren, trackless waste, extending for hundreds of miles to the Arkansas River in one direction and to the Missouri in the other. Before and behind us, the level plain was unbroken as far as the eye could see. Sometimes the hot, bare sand of the plain glared in the sun. Sometimes the plain was covered by long, coarse grass. Skulls and whitening bones of buffalo were scattered scattered everywhere. The morning after we reached the plat, a long procession of wretched savages passed near our camp. They were on foot, each leading his horse by a rope of bull hide. Their dress consisted merely of a kind of loincloth and an old buffalo robe, tattered and grimy, hanging over their shoulders. They carried their bows and their arrows in their hands, while their lean little horses were laden with dried buffalo meat, the harvest of their hunting. These were the Pawnees whom Kearsley had encountered the day before we caught up with his party. These Pawnees were the first examples, and rather unimpressive ones they were, of the genuine prairie savages. Although we later learned that these Pawnees had attacked an emigrant party before us, I had a friendly conference with their chief, who received my gift of half a pound of tobacco with great pleasure. Look at it this way, Francis, Quincy said after they had gone. They may seem friendly now, but I'm mighty glad we're with Kearsley's wagon train. After all, with ten more men available, we won't have to stand guard so often. End of chapter three. Chapter four. Buffalo! Four days on the plat and still no buffalo. Last year's signs of them were plentiful. The ground was covered with tracks and dimpled with the low spots where the bulls had wallowed in the hot weather. Buffalo chips, their dried droppings, littered the plain everywhere and made an excellent substitute fuel for wood, which was extremely scarce, but the animals themselves were not to be seen. One afternoon, Henry Chatillon and I rode off for a mile or two from the party in search of an antelope. The vast plain waved with tall, thick grass that swayed to and fro in billows with the breeze, sweeping our horses' bellies. Suddenly, Henry shouted and pointed in the direction of the broken line of scorched, desolate sandhills on our left. There, a mile and a half away, two black specks slowly crossed the bare glaring of a face of a hill. "'Buffalo, let us go!' he cried, whipping the sides of his hardy Indian pony. We entered a ravine that that wound like a snake among the hills. It was so deep that it completely hit us. We rode up the bottom of it, glancing through the bushes at at its edge, until Henry abruptly jerked his rein and slid out of the saddle. There, you see, he said. I followed his pointing finger to a hill a quarter mile distant. There, a long procession of buffalo marched in Indian file with the greatest dignity. Then more appeared from a hollow not far off, clambering up the grassy slope of another hill. A shaggy head and a pair of short, broken horns emerged from a ravine nearby, and with a slow, stately step, one by one the enormous brutes came into view, making their way across the valley entirely unaware of any enemy. Henry began crawling through grass and prickly pears towards his unsuspecting victims. He carried my rifle as well as his own. 
while I sat holding his horse's reins and wondering what he was up to. He was soon out of sight, and still the buffalo kept coming into the valley. For a long time, all was silent. Suddenly, in rapid succession, came the sharp blasts of two rifles. The whole line of buffalo quickened their pace into a clumsy trot and gradually disappeared over the ridge of the hill. Henry rose to his feet and stood looking after them. "'You've missed them,' I said. "'Yes,' said Henry. "'Let us go.' He came down into the ravine, loaded the rifles, and mounted his horse. We rode up the hill after the buffalo. The herd was out of sight when we reached the top, but lying on the grass not far off was one buffalo, quite dead, and another dying. "'You see how I miss them?' cried Henry joyously. He had fired from a distance of more than 150 yards, and both bullets had passed through the lungs, the true mark in shooting buffalo. The darkness increased, and a driving storm came on. We tied our horses to the horns of the buffalo to keep the horses still in the storm, and Henry began the bloody work of cutting up the buffalo. He slashed away with the skill of an expert, while I vainly tried to imitate him. We tied the meat to the rawhide strings dangling at the back of our saddles, and with our horses heavily burdened with the better parts of the buffalo, we set out on our return. It was strangely dark during the storm, even though sunset was an hour off. We rode in driving sleet and cold rain through a large colony of prairie dogs. The little mounds of fresh earth around their holes were as numerous as the hills in a cornfield, but not a yelp was to be heard or a nose seen. They had all retired to the depths of their burrows. We envied them their dry, comfortable homes. An hour's hard riding showed us our tent, dimly looming through the storm. One side was puffed out by the force of the wind. We flung our piles of meat on the ground outside the tent, and Quincy, sitting inside, gave us a big smile of satisfaction. A few days later on the trail, I heard from one of the men the cry of, Buffalo! Buffalo! but it was only one grim old bull roaming the prairie by himself. "'There may be more behind the hills,' I shouted. "'Come on, Quincy! Henry!' We rode for over six miles, but the only living things we saw were wolves, snakes, and prairie dogs. The ground grew bad for a chase. Steep hills and deep hollows cut by frequent ravines not easy to pass. At last we saw a band of bulls. They were scattered, with some grazing on a green slope, and the rest crowded together in the wide hollow below. We rode toward them at an easy pace, bending close to our horses' necks. Instantly the bulls took alarm. Those on the hill moved down, those below gathered into a mass, and all began shouldering each other along at a clumsy gallop. We followed, spurring our horses to full speed. <coughs> 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 As the herd rushed through an opening in the hills, crowding and trampling in terror, we were close at their heels, half suffocated by the clouds of dust. But as we drew near, their alarm and speed increased. Our horses, new to the work, showed signs of the utmost fear. They bounded violently aside as we approached the buffalo and refused to enter the herd. The buffalo now broke into several small groups, scampering over the hills in different directions. We followed, and I lost sight of Quincy. Neither of us knew where the other had gone. Pontiac, my horse, ran like a frantic elephant uphill and downhill, his heavy hoofs striking the prairie like sledgehammers. One moment he seemed eager, straining to overtake the panic-stricken herd. The next moment he was terrified and retreated. At length I urged Pontiac close behind a bull. I could clearly see the buffalo's shaggy mane and the tattered traces of last winter's hair, which covered his back in uneven shreds and patches. This hair flew off in the wind as he ran, but neither my whip nor my spurs would bring Pontiac alongside him. So from my unfavorable position, I fired. More next time. Good night.